Joel 2, verses 12 to 17. Both of these are on the back of your uh, bulletin there on page 8. So we'll read these consecutively and then begin our sermon. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rent your heart and not your garments. That is, tear your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. For wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Amen. And then from Matthew 6, Moreover, when ye fast, not if ye fast, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, which is in secret. And thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I promised you a sermon on Lent this evening, so that is what you will have. Before I get into a defense of such a practice Allow me to inform you of what the term technically means. It comes from the Anglo-Saxon term for the season of spring. So in some ways, when spring comes around, Lent comes around. And its historical usage or theological usage, you might want to say, or ecclesiastical usage, how the church has used it, it is referred to times of fasting. More specifically, the time of fasting that led up to Easter. There's plenty of dispute involved in where it really comes from. It was uh, observed in different ways throughout church history at different amounts of time in different places. (coughs) But Christians have always entered into seasons of fasting together. Don't worry, you don't have to have the word Lent in the Bible in order to join in a communal season of fasting and teaching any more than you need a biblical command to have a sermon series and all the thoughts and actions that might come from it. Now, it is an Anglo-Saxon term, Lent, which means that it has not always been called Lent. And it's still not always called Lent. Only people that speak English really call it that and some Latin churches as well. 
But the term Lent, it was applied to the season of fasting that preceded Easter. There's also a tradition in the Eastern Church where they basically have two seasons of Lent. They have Lent and Great Lent. They would account Advent as the first and Lent Lent as the second, seeing that they both lead up in the calendar to pivotal events like Christmas and Easter. Again, you don't need a biblical justification to center your teaching for a season in the church any more than you need a biblical justification for preaching through books of the Bible, doing a topical series, etc. In their simplest forms, these seasons of fasting, what we'll call Lent, they are simply ways to organize the life of the church together around the life of Christ and this particular period of the history of redemption. The community element is an element that is so often overlooked. The community element itself in our lives is as important as fasting. And when I say this, I'm pointing to our need for community itself. And to think about community among human beings, it's not just a need, it is a natural inclination. We attract two people. We uh, cannot live without community. You form communities, and communities produce habits based on traditions, morals, etc. This is simply human nature. Wherever you look and there is culture in the earth, there are habits that flow from that culture. But the communal aspect, it is so pivotal because culture creates habits. If you see what our culture is producing, you can draw it back to the community in which those things that are produced are being taught and fostered. More, put it more simply, you become what you practice. You become what you teach. Isn't it true that your children become what you mold them to be? Do schools not produce what they call alumni? Culture creates habits. Uh, one writer says this, not about Lent in particular, but about culture. One of the things about building up a culture is the need to organically develop a common imagination about the character of a given people. There has to be some sort of shared cultural instinct that unifies and draws together a people around their social priorities adorations, and objects of value. A people need common tales, myths, heroes, and villains that shape the way they uplift their country or their community. Those things are true in the church and outside of it. The church has begun to be afflicted by this negative culture as well, and sadly, it is often the church that is producing this culture. What is this culture, though, that I keep referring to? It's all around you. It is a culture of gratifying the desires of the flesh. The absolute opposite of fasting. Claiming liberty in Christ as a justification for device or for vice, excuse me. Being known for self-approval more than self-denial. It is a culture of covetousness gluttony, 
and wickedness. Quite frankly, the church and our country are a disgusting people inside and out. And this need for community, this total manifestation of community is shown in our text from Joel chapter 2. You saw that the Lord, in calling this great fast, did not call just some. He called all to it, to participate in this whole devotion to the Lord, to rend their heart and not their garments because of their sin. But this truth about their sin was not meant to drive them from God. It was meant to drive them to Him. For He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. You see that they are all called together. Gather the people, He says. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, even the children, even the infants. Bring them all to Me. Come together as a community to practice what I'm teaching you to practice. And you know this community aspect to be true. You see, the sad thing is, that we are more okay with imposing a diet upon ourselves for physical well-being than we are okay with imposing upon ourselves a spiritual diet for spiritual well-being. It is true. You ask anybody in January, they're starting a new diet for the year, right? How many people start new spiritual habits for the year? How many people keep them up for very long? Now, in arguing for this in a culture and a time to do it, I'm not saying that you need Lent to do this, to practice self-denial, to turn away from gratifying the desires of the flesh. But let me ask you a question. Are you doing it at all? Because that's the true purpose of Lent. It's not to say that you only do things for a season. It's to bring you back so that you can do them all the time. Just as we, as I mentioned this morning, we only meditate on certain aspects of the redemption of Christ for a certain amount of time because that's all we can handle. But it's so that they might permeate our whole lives. And Lent is a call back to the spiritual disciplines. Is it possibly the case that you have joined in the mocking of Lent, which is... Uh, overly common, um, because you just don't want to fast. You just don't want to abstain and be brought into a greater spiritual condition. If your point in objecting to Lent is you don't want to walk around with ashes on your forehead, let me tell you that's a 20th century innovation anyway. It hasn't historically been done. But if your point in Lent is you don't want to abstain from things like chocolate, you want to take Uh, spiritual life seriously are you doing it right and our mockery of people doing things poorly we actually tend to fall into the opposite ditch and then not do them at all i'm not saying that refusing to practice lent is antinomian or against god's law but i am saying that refusing to practice fasting abstinence and self-purification is Antinomian. It is against God's law and it is unchristian. Maybe you don't actually have a good grasp on what it is to take up the cross and follow Christ. Was he not known for, at times, fasting? He didn't fast all the time, right? He was also called a glutton, a wine bibber, and a drunkard, a party animal, more or less. 
But he was also known for fasting and abstaining from things that might have been his right. I am convinced that we have no idea how to feast anymore because we don't fast. You can't enjoy good things if you're always partaking of them. If you're always living in a feasting mode, you're never going to actually appreciate the feasting seasons. Again, I'm not saying you have to observe Lent, whatever that means. But I am saying that you have to practice the Christian virtues that Lent emphasizes. Now, let me give you a little bit of a history lesson. Maybe you're a history buff and you know about what is called the Affair of the Sausages. Have you heard of this with Holdrick, or Ulrich Zwingli? Right? He was one of the early reformers. And the story is that Zwingli uh, hated Lent so much that he led his people, uh, those whom he was over in um, Zurich, Switzerland, uh, that he led them to defy Lent by eating sausage on a day that it was forbidden. It is true that he did lead the people and, and teach them to defy the certain practices that were imposed upon them in Lent. But I have some quotes for you. I'm going to read them now, and it, it helps frame the actual traditional thinking on it, where he's not objecting to Lent. He's objecting to ungodly and unbiblical impositions upon the people through Lent. I have the book. You can read the whole thing for yourself. Uh, it's just a section in the book. It's called Liberty, Respecting Food in Lent. And this is an important historical context. And, you know, so many people, the Reformed do not and have not practiced Lent. Okay, whatever that may be. But Lent, in the time of the Reformation, was not just a season that was practiced within the church. They lived in Christian societies where they had the blessing of the possibility of Christian abuses by the government. Now, that, that kind of takes a second to wrap your mind around. We live in a time where we are under outright heathen principles. They lived under a time where they had Christian leadership trying to implement Christianity, and they failed at doing so. It was a Christian abuse that they were under. We don't often think of this when we look back on our Western history. So let me give you a couple of quotes from Zwingli. It's not really about Zwingli, but if you're familiar with it and you've been fed this one narrative on it, I want to correct it. He says this in his writing on freedom in Lent. All of my efforts are directed against this assumption that we are restrained at this and that time by divine law. Let each one fast as often as the spirit of true belief urges him. Close quote. Now, what is he saying? His efforts are directed at those who were not only in the church, but also in society. It was illegal for people to sell certain things on certain days. Now, you can see why that's a problem in a society where people depended on what they were selling in order to make a livelihood, Right? You can't forbid people from doing certain things that they do for their livelihood in the name of Lent, right? 
That's the problem that he's opposing. And they were considering it sin. And not just sin, but political crime. People would be arrested for it. And then he talks about 1 Samuel 21, the passage we read last week about David. He says, notice here that need is superior not only to human, but also to divine law. For observing the Sabbath is divine law. That means it was a command from God. The hunger of the disciples did not observe the Sabbath. Notice again that no place withstands need and that David in need might go into the temple. Close quote. Again, what is he saying? God gave this command about the Sabbath, that they were not to do X, Y, and Z, but also that only the priests could take this bread. David goes in, and the principle is shown in Scripture and then reflected by Christ in Mark 2, that human need trumps, at times, divine law. So far as we are not sinning when we do so. So human need, the need for food, the need for uh, financial provision, cannot be suppressed by the way one observes Lent. Another quote. This abstaining, this Lent, I do not wish to condemn if it occurs freely to put the flesh under control. And if no self-confidence or vainglory, but rather humility, results. He does not condemn Lent as long as it occurs freely for the purpose of self-control, refusing of self-confidence and vainglory, and the production of humility. Last one. He says, is one not to keep the feast? Meaning, is one not to observe the church calendar, broadly speaking? His answer Who says or teaches that? (laughs) If you are not content with the fasts, meaning if you're not content with what they're already doing, then you can also fast on Shrovetide, which was basically like the leading up to uh, Ash Wednesday. Indeed, I say that it is a good thing for a man to fast if he fasts as fasts are taught by Christ. Matthew 6, 16, Isaiah 58, 6. You see, this is where our reading from Matthew 6 comes in. Christ says, don't fast like the hypocrites, right? Because some of the people, when they would fast, and maybe you've run into somebody that does this today, and it's a real temptation. If you've ever seriously fasted, you're just tempted to talk about it, right? I'm fasting today. I'm sorry, right? You just, you just have to bring it up, right? Jesus was addressing not just that, but the people who, when they fasted, They would disfigure their faces. They wanted to show you how spiritually despondent they were, how physically tired and weak they were from their fast. He says, no, don't fast like that. Meaning if you are being brought to do that in your fast, you're doing it wrong. Anoint your head, he says. Wash your hair. Wash your face. Clean up. Do not appear to men to fast, but only to the Lord. And notice he says that the Lord who sees these things in secret, fasting, shall reward openly. And as we know, fasting certainly reveals where our hearts are. I watched a video uh, from a guy who's a a Presbyterian, um, and he, uh, his name's, I think, isn't Glenn Sunshine a Presbyterian? He's Anglican. 
Congregationalist, excuse me, the in-between, right? Kind of a little bit of both. And he, he laid out some reasons why it was good for Protestants to observe, to practice Lent. I'm going to go through these really quickly. The first reason is because of fasting. Fasting is, let, let me tell you what fasting is in case you're in the dark. Fasting is not um, refraining from sin. We should always be doing that. Fasting is a form of abstinence where we turn from the things that are in themselves lawful, but we deprive ourselves of them for a season to practice self-denial. Is self-denial remotely thought of in a high way in our society? No. Why not recover it? You don't have to do it in Lent, but you can join other Christians in doing so. Fasting shows what controls you, whether it be from food, technology, work, in a sense. Fasting from work doesn't mean you can't go to your job. But if you're one of those people that overworks, that would be a good thing to consider. Fasting also helps in prayer. Because if you're actually fasting, you are going to be driven to a greater dependence upon the Lord. The second thing is similar to fasting, but abstinence. What is there in my life that controls me is a question that flows from this. Abstaining, again, not just from unlawful things. We should do that all the time. But seasonally, just as Christ did, we should abstain from things that are lawful. Because we are required to be in control of ourselves. What habits need to be broken? What habits need to be added? See, fasting isn't always about negating. It can be about adding. What good do you need to add to your life? And what do you need to do to get there? The third thing, and it kind of emphasizes the communal aspect. Everybody that is Christian, really outside of the Bible Belt, practices Lent. Really. All the world over, Christians practice Lent, with the small exception of certain Presbyterian Congregationalists and Baptist churches. That's just true. Why not? Right? Connect with Christians around the world. Do it in a right way. Fast in a proper way. Again, you don't have to do it in Lent, but let's outdo one another. The fourth thing, uh, the true intent of Lent is really just sanctification. Sanctification through a season that calls on us to higher measures. Um, the fifth thing, uh, Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23, and Numbers 29 all teach that God calls on his people at times to afflict themselves. Afflict themselves. He says even there to afflict your souls, and that is what fasting is. And six, fasting produces wide eyes for repentance because it shows where your treasure is. In closing, a general principle, the abuse of a thing does not negate the proper use of it, right? Just because Lent has been abused, just because seasons in the church have been abused and they've led people to do crazy things, so has the rejection of all those things. The abuse does not negate a proper use. And we can't focus on everything all the time. 
There is a principle that's true, that things that have been rejected in the past can be restored in the present. Did you know in the Reformation, nearly all the reformers to a man rejected the use of wedding rings? Did you know that? Because of what they conveyed, they were used by Roman Catholics in their marriage ceremonies and what they taught about weddings. And it was only slowly restored. Did you know that even unto the middle of the 1900s, that only a woman received a wedding ring in a marriage ceremony? Yeah. Now everybody does it. I mean, no big deal. It is what it is. But it just shows you how complicated and complex history can be around these things. And the final principle. Unlawful actions attach themselves to lawful ones. That is to say things like gluttony attaches itself to the need for food. Lust attaches itself to natural sexual desire. Covetousness attaches itself to human need. And it is only through fasting, or let's say fasting is one of the ways that we can discern whether or not something ungodly has attached itself to that which is supposed to be good in our lives. Freely suppressing that which is lawful for a time can help us to cleanse our actions and our desires. That's what I'm going to be preaching on in the next few weeks, uh, mainly in Sunday evening sermons, but I'll mention it in Sunday morning as well. So be free in Christ to practice Lent or to not, but you are not free not to fast. Amen. Let us pray.